I'm Brett McGarry. This week on The Couch Potatoes, I did something that Jeff normally does. I saw a war movie. Yeah. And I liked it. I'll tell you how much I liked Dunkirk. Plus... I'm Jeff Braun. I saw a different sort of war movie. One about monkeys and the planet they live on. Stay tuned to find out what movie I'm talking about. Plus... The mystery is going to bother me for the next little while. I have no idea what you could be talking about, Jeff. Dunkirk 2, the monkeys. <laughs> if, you, if you've never seen the acclaimed Amazon series Transparent, now you can, courtesy of Showcase. And Game of Thrones opens Season 7 with record ratings. First, it's the news. From the couch. Every leap of civilization was built off the back of slaves. Replicants are the future, but I can only make so many. I have the luck, and he has the key. I think I found him. That's not possible. If this gets out, we've bought ourselves a war. The second full-length trailer arrived this week for a sequel some 35 years in the making. Blade Runner 2049. How does one summarize Blade Runner? That first film was directed by Ridley Scott, based on Philip K. Dick's novel Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? That first film was set in 2019, in a world where there are humans and replicants. Androids, robots that look like humans. Harrison Ford played Rick Deckard, a Blade Runner, a.k.a. a cop who hunted replicants who got out of line. This new film takes place many years after the first one, and we learn that Deckard has gone into hiding. You're a cop. I did your job once. Things were simpler then. What do you want? I want to ask you some questions. What happened? I covered my tracks. Scramble the records. We were being hunted. By who? They know you're here. The cop in this new one is Ryan Gosling. The film also stars Robin Wright and Jared Leto as a replicant who has a bone to pick with humanity. You do not know what pain is yet. You will learn. Bring it to me. At least that's what I think is going on. The trailers have done a nice job of not revealing too much of the story. The first film was gorgeous, and this new film maintains that aesthetic and expands on it thanks to, you know, slightly improved visual effects since 1982. And it's directed by Quebec's Denis Villeneuve, so that's pretty cool. Blade Runner 2049 opens October 6th. Where is he? The future of the species is finally unearthed. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. If you know that clip, you know what I'm about to talk about. If you don't, let me explain. That's a clip of a movie called The Room, 
widely regarded by fans of crappy movies as the worst movie of all time. It was made by a guy named Tommy Wiseau, who's also the star, back in 2003. Now, James Franco has made a movie about the making of The Room and stars himself as Tommy Wiseau. Ready? And action! What a line. What a line. The Room has a massive cult following. Wiseau himself goes to midnight screenings all the time, leaning into the joke instead of being upset about it. Not sure how he's going to feel about this, though. They do make him look pretty dumb. What a line. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bull****. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Okay. Action. What is line? The movie has a terrific cast, including Seth Rogen, as you may have guessed, Alison Brie, Lizzie Kaplan, Zac Efron, Dave Franco, a.k.a. Cole Fusion, Kristen Bell, Eliza Coop, Adam Scott, Judd Apatow, and on and on and on. Seriously, about 20 more names I could list. Take 13. Action. I did not hit her. I... Okay, okay. Wine. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Take 67. Action. I hit her. No. Do you want to change the line? You're doing great, man. We'll get there. The Disaster Artist comes out December 8th. Action. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Yeah! A woman vanished last night. We just found the body. Prince. And the head. He's missing. That's a clip from the first trailer for The Snowman, starring Michael Fassbender as Detective Harry Hole, the main character of a series of books from Norwegian author Joe Nesbo. The Harry Hole books have sold 30 million copies worldwide, so he's a big deal. And in this film, Hole is chasing quite the killer. A woman disappears in the first snow of winter, and her pink scarf is found wrapped around a snowman. He calls himself the Snowman Killer. He's completely insane. I'm thinking that he's going after women that he disapproves of. The only thing we know for sure is that he's playing games with us. Turns out the snowman has eluded law enforcement for years. And Harry Hole has to connect some old cases to this new one before the next snowfall. He's been watching us the whole time. Building snowmen, cutting things up into little pieces. He's taunting us. If we don't find him, this is never going to stop. The film co-stars Rebecca Ferguson and J.K. Simmons and was originally set to be directed by Martin Scorsese, but it ended up being... Thomas Alfredson, who helmed the Swedish vampire film Let the Right One In, as well as Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Scorsese is still on board, though, as an executive producer. It's filmed in Norway, which looks to provide both a beautiful and claustrophobic backdrop. The Snowman opens October 20th. Another missing woman. There's something we're not seeing. 
What matters most is that we celebrate the way this has brought us together. Anyone can see that he's trying to hide something. You can't force the pieces to fit. You could have saved them. No. Gave you all the clues. If I told you about her, the princess without voice, what would I say? The trailer came out this week for the newest movie from director Guillermo del Toro. If you don't recognize the name, shame on you. He made the Hellboy movies, Pacific Rim, and Pan's Labyrinth. He also made that horror movie Crimson Peak a couple of years ago, which is too scary for me. I honestly can't believe I even watched Pan's Labyrinth. That still gives me nightmares. One of the scariest movies I've ever watched. Yikes. But now, Guillermo has made something a little more palatable for us scaredy cats, I think. It's called The Shape of Water. Sally Hawkins plays a mute janitor at a government, a U.S. government super-secret laboratory in the 1960s, and she discovers they have an alien there. She's deaf? Mute, sir. She can hear you. You clean that lab, you get out. This may very well be the most sensitive asset ever to be housed in this facility. You may think that thing looks human stands on two legs, right? But we're created in the Lord's image. You don't think that's what the Lord looks like, do you? This creature is intelligent, capable of language, of understanding emotions. The movie also stars Michael Shannon, Michael Stuhlbarg, Octavia Spencer, Richard Jenkins, and of course the alien. The alien, which is me assuming it's an alien, looks like the creature from the Black Lagoon. It's got a humanoid skeleton, but fishy skin and a spiny fin on its back. It lives in this green gook in the lab, although we do see it swimming at one point in a tank of regular water. Anyways, not your typical monster movie. Hawkins, who feels like an outcast because she is a mute, and the alien, they fall in love, or at least into a deep friendship. They make a connection at any rate. Here's Richard Jenkins translating her sign language. When he looks at me, he doesn't know how I am incomplete. He sees me as I am. Which, of course, makes it harder for her to deal with the fact the government is abusing the alien. We need to take it apart, learn how it works. I don't want an intricate, beautiful thing destroyed. We can do nothing. I'm sorry. Don't do this, Alasa. What is she saying? Don't do this. Oh, God, it's not even human. The movie looks gorgeous, and clearly the sci-fi of it all is meant to take a backseat to the relationship story. If the trailer's any indication, it really will be quite something. The Shape of Water hits theaters December 8th. If I told you about her, what would I say? I wonder. Ah, uh, Leonard, have you met our distinguished guest? He's a well-tailored one, isn't he? Actor Martin Landau passed away this week at the age of 89. He had a long career, but will likely be remembered for a few key roles, including his part as the main thug in Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest, which we heard. He also had a recurring role in the old Mission Impossible TV show. Landau was later nominated for an Oscar for his fantastic performance in Woody Allen's Crimes and Misdemeanors. That's what Ben told me. He says you make films. Yeah, but not that kind. You know, the different kind. 
I have a great murder story. Except my murder story has a very strange twist. And he eventually won an Oscar for his role as Bela Lugosi in Tim Burton's Ed Wood. What a night, what a life, what a moment, what everything. I, I talked to Tim Burton today in New York, and uh, I want to finish a conversation. Thanks, Tim, for giving me the part of my life. Landau passed away after unexpected complications during a short stay at a hospital, according to his publicist. I shall show the world that I can be its master. That is the news from the couch. We also said goodbye to George A. Romero this week, one of the most influential filmmakers of all time. He started the zombie trend back in the 60s with Night of the Living Dead. Still to come, reviews of Dunkirk, War for the Planet of the Apes, and up next... What's that? Spoiler. You're supposed to give away the title. Remember my sweet tease at the front of the show? I'm just kidding. (laughs) Look at that. (laughs) I'm dumb. And up next to tell you what's coming to home video on Tuesday, July 25th. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Who are you? I'm on a mission. There's not enough love to go around. My job is to find out why. Now give me a double espresso and see if there's some place around here with decent sushi. I kill for a spicy tuna roll right about now. DreamWorks, The Boss Baby. What? That cookie down. Cookies are for closers. Brett McGarry, Jeff Braun, we are the Couch Potatoes, having a look at what is coming to home video this upcoming week on Tuesday, July 5th. What was that? Uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross? Yeah, absolutely. Two? The animated version for kids called <laughs> Bo- The Boss Baby, starring Alec Baldwin. Neat. Yeah. Uh, and it did good in theaters, so uh, there you go. If you wanted to buy one, you can get one next Tuesday. Also coming out, uh, Scarlett Johansson in The Ghost in the Shell. What was that one about? Is she like a robot in that? Yeah, and it's it's based on a Japanese manga and right. uh, came under fire because it was a oh. Japanese character that they, they right, cast right. with a white woman. Yep. So yeah. Uh, season six, the final season of the HBO show Girls starring Lena Dunham. That comes out if you want to complete your collection. And uh, speaking of collections, the Criterion Collection is putting out Lost in America starring Albert Brooks and Julie Haggerty. That's one of my favorite Albert Brooks movies right there. It's a great one if you've never seen it. Look at that. Yeah. Much, um, most of those will probably be on, at least the Boss Baby and Ghost in the Shell will definitely be available on demand as well if you have like a, oh, yeah. like a Shaw on demand. If they aren't already. Yep. Um, Digital HD on Monday, Veep Season 6, ju- uh, with uh, starring Julia Louis-Dreyfus. On Tuesday, July 25th, King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, starring <laughs> Charlie Hunnam and Jude <laughs> I Am The Law. And also, okay. and that's, uh, what's his name, right? Guy Ritchie movie? Yep. Which is weird, because the other movie that comes out is Snatched with an E-D at the end, because mm. his movie was Snatch. Yes. But this is the comedy Snatch, starring Amy Schumer and Goldie Hawn, where they play uh, ugly Americans on vacation who get kidnapped in Mexico. It's it's a week of mostly box office disappointments. Yeah. Now, you mentioned The Boss Baby did well, and uh, that was, I think, uh, I'm just pulling that up right now. Oh, yeah, The Boss Baby 2 is already planned for 2021, by the looks of it. Mm. Oh, my God. Made $500 million worldwide. Boom. There you go. So that's I, a giant hit. <laughs> $175 million North America. But then you look at Ghost in the Shell. Just let me pull that up here. That did not. Uh, yeah, it had $40 million in North America and then $169 million worldwide. <clears throat> so that's not Probably made great. its money back. There you go. Uh, well, $110 million. Uh, I King Arthur, yikes. That was also a, a significant flop 
uh, in North America, 39 million, but again, it made 140 million worldwide. Not enough to make back its production budget of 175. That movie cost 175 million dollars. It had like some pretty serious visual effects in there. Looking at the trailers, but the marketing budget alone, I don't want to know what that cost them. So they uh, took a bath on that one. Yeah, and then um, Snatched was a failure as well. Yep, but at least the budget on that probably wasn't even close to what any of those other ones were. Uh, 42 million dollars, and its domestic was 45 million. So it barely made its money yeah. back. So it's a hit, <laughs> a very small, small hit. Uh, something coming to Netflix. Uh, the show Ozark starring Jason Bateman. You were talking about that a couple weeks ago, weren't you? Yeah, and that actually, I guess, uh, debuted this. That's debuted this weekend. Yeah, it's out now. Yeah, okay. Just came out. Cool. That's the one with Jason Bateman and uh, Laura Linney, and he plays uh, like a guy who has to launder money for the Mexican drug cartel, and he moves to the Lake of Goes the Ozarks. Goes to the mountains. In Missouri, where things get really complicated Yeesh. for his life. It looks really good. It's nice to see Jason Bateman doing something dramatic. He always plays that sort of dry comedy stuff. I would watch that probably for 45 minutes before I realized it wasn't a comedy. Oh, it's just him being the straight man. Reviews of Dunkirk and War for the Planet of the Apes up next. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are The Couch Potatoes. This feels kind of weird here because normally it's you, Jeff, who reviews the war films. Yep. even did the preview at the beginning of the month for this one. But this week I got to attend a preview screening for Dunkirk. The enemy tanks have stopped. Why? Why waste precious tanks when they can pick us off from the air like fish in a barrel? There are 400,000 men on this beach. Directed by Christopher Nolan, this film is about the World War II evacuation of Allied troops from Dunkirk, France, also known as Operation Dynamo, or the Miracle of Dunkirk. With a German war machine closing in around them, British troops, French troops, Belgian troops, and Canadian troops all had to amass on the beach and just wait to be picked up and hope they didn't get picked off by German planes. Where are we going? Dunkirk. There's no hiding from this sun. We have a job to do. If we go, they will die. The film focuses primarily on the British soldiers, with some French ones thrown in. The ensemble cast includes Kenneth Branagh, Tom Hardy, Killian Murphy, and Mark Rylance, just to name a few. You can practically see it from here. What? Home. The cast also includes Harry Styles, the pop star from the boy band One Direction. He's now a solo artist too, and he's in a serious war movie. And since the film is rated PG, or PG-13 in the US, there are some teenage girls in the audience. In fact, two of them ended up sitting right beside me, and they wouldn't stop giggling through all of the previews. And even as the movie started, they were still giggling. I thought I was going to have to tell them to shut it. But then the machine gun started firing, and I heard one of them say, Oh, I don't think I'm going to like this. 
but they both swooned when Harry Styles appeared. Yeah, and, and you know what? He was actually pretty good. Also, because it's not rated R, there's no gore. So this isn't like Saving Private Ryan or Hacksaw Ridge. We still see how awful war is just without the painful gore. I would also point out it's under two hours. It's an hour 45. I couldn't believe it. That's actually one of the reasons why I decided to stay at this preview screening because I had to go do the introduction at the beginning and then just decided to have a seat and watch the film. Dunkirk follows three separate stories, one on the ground, one at sea, and one in the air. The one on the ground involves a newcomer actor, Finn Whitehead. He plays Tommy, soldier on the ground, trying to get to the beach and simply get out of Dunkirk alive. The one at sea involves Mark Rylance, who is heading to Dunkirk as a civilian with his son and son's friend on their yacht to, to help with the evacuation. And the one in the air primarily involves Tom Hardy, who has, I think, become the most difficult man to understand on film. Even with his regular British accent, I just couldn't make out what he was saying half the time. First, the Dark Knight Rises as Bane, couldn't understand him. Then as the jerk and the revenant. Seriously, I don't think I understand understood a single word of dialogue he said in that film. I had to wait until it came out on Blu-ray so I could watch it with the subtitles. And now here as a pilot because he has that thing over his face the whole time. Was it good? Yes, Dunkirk was very good. It has an excellent rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It's been hovering around 94, 95%. But I'm going to start with the bad. Christopher Nolan... Great director. No one will argue Christopher Nolan is one of the greats, but he gets into his usual brand of narrative trickery with this film, and it did not work for me. What I mean by narrative trickery is he often likes to tell stories that are not quite linear, and sometimes it's too great effect. Memento, for example, I don't know if you've ever seen that film, but it tells two stories about one guy that intersect at the end of the film, and it is genius. The Prestige, starring Christian Bane or Bale and uh, Hugh Jackman, also had lots of flashbacks. That movie, or that served uh, that film well. In Dunkirk, though, I, I didn't really see the point. On one hand, I suppose it separates this film from just being a war movie. And I, I don't, you know, I, I'm not trying to be flippant by that, but it, it, you know, it didn't feel like a movie just trying to sort of be like a docudrama almost. And I will admit it was kind of neat at times, but it was also kind of confusing at other times to the point where I was distracted in trying to figure out how it all pieced together. And as a result, I was just taken out of the movie. So that's a misstep on Nolan's part. Other than that, no major complaints. It's technically magnificent. The sound effects and sound mix especially were just extraordinary. The sound of a German plane screaming from overhead amplified almost as though the enemy planes were characters, like demons getting ready to claim their souls. The sound of bullets being fired did not sound like typical movie bullets, and it was consistently jarring and unnerving. The visuals were all amazing, particularly the scenes in the air. I saw it on an IMAX screen, not a proper IMAX screen, mind you, not a proper 70 millimeter, but the ones where the screen is just a bit bigger and they call it IMAX, whatever. It was still excellent from that standpoint. And the score from Hans Zimmer is relentless. It is heart pounding and tense from start to finish. The whole movie is like that. It pretty much grabs you from the opening frame and doesn't let go until the very end. Like I said, the only thing that took me out of the film was Christopher Nolan and his stupid narrative 
all of this technical stuff does allow the story to present itself rather naturally. It's war and it's horrifying. And you feel like you're right there in it with all of these men and the things that they had to endure to try to get out of the situation alive is just unthinkable. Tens of thousands did not make it out alive, but over 300,000 did escape with their lives. It's a unique piece of our history where it's both tragic and uplifting as well. And the movie plays both sides of that coin very well. I'm curious to see how it's going to play in the United States because this part of the war did not involve involve the Americans. And if a movie doesn't involve the Americans, it usually doesn't matter to American audiences. But it is Christopher Nolan, and his name carries a lot of weight. Bottom line for me, the narrative was a little messy, thanks to Nolan and his usual hijinks. But from a technical standpoint, it is a masterpiece, and it does a brilliant job of giving us a glimpse of the miracle of Dunkirk. So I'm going to give Dunkirk four couch cushions out of five. I'll just quickly mention the other two movies out this weekend are Valerian and The City of a Thousand Planets, which is getting okay reviews, and Girls' Night, which is getting solid reviews. Up next, Jeff's going to tell you about War for the Planet of the Apes, and we'll have to sneak in some time to talk about Transparent and Game of Thrones. You're listening to The Couch Potato. Welcome back to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff, he's Brett, and I saw a war movie this week as well. It's called War for the Planet of the Apes. All of human history has led to this moment. And if we lose, it will be a planet of apes. Apes! Together! Strong! Yes, I would also like to quickly point out that Brett is eating a banana right now as yeah. I talk about <laughs> War for the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> Sorry, I'm hungry. That's all right. <laughs> War 4 completes the modern-day ape trilogy, a trilogy which has been dynamite. The first one, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, came out in 2011. That was a bit of a surprise hit, raked in nearly half a billion dollars, and even more impressively, everyone loved it. The old series, beloved as it is, is, you know, ridiculous, and the Tim Burton remake in the early 2000s was kind of dumb. But Rise played it straight, and the results were fantastic. Then three years later, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes comes out. It was even better. It also made over $700 million. Rise was the origin story of the main monkey, Caesar. It showed how the apes became super smart, how the humans nearly made themselves extinct. Then Dawn was set a few years down the road, the apes getting better at life while the humans were having a tougher time. Now with war, things are heightened even more. Caesar is also done playing nice with the humans, who keep trying to take him and the other apes out. Woody Harrelson. The warlord leader of the humans, he's got stuff going on that isn't obvious right up front. One of the better turns of the film comes two-thirds of the way through. We learn a little bit more about what's rattling around in Woody's head. But mostly it's Caesar's movie. This takes place 15 years after the main action of that first movie, so the virus that has been unleashed has uh, had time to really decimate humanity. We don't know how many humans are left in the world, or for that matter, if there are other ape colonies like the one we've been following this whole time. That's always been one of my favorite parts of the series. We're focused on what, you know, what you could call the California situation, and who knows what else is going on anywhere else on the planet. No word on the fate of Gary Oldman's group of humans from that last movie, unless there was concluded in that movie. I can't remember. The only humans here anyways are the army led by Woody. Caesar's clan has a few familiar faces. Maurice is back. Some new faces, which I guess we're supposed to assume were monkeys that were just somewhere in the crowd in the last movie. Of course, they've also been procreating, so there's that. And they're smarter than ever before. Caesar's English is much better, which is weird because none of the other monkeys talk. 
they all do sign language with each other. Uh, their fighting has improved. They're at war with Woody, and they got a tight army. The fight scenes at the beginning are terrific. Monkeys on horseback shooting bows and arrows is never not a wonder to behold. But even with war in the title, the movie isn't quite as action-packed as you might think. It's not fight scene after fight scene after fight scene. There is some at the beginning, and there's some action at the end, which I won't get into at all. But mostly it's a character drama about a monkey trying to come to grips with his grief over what the war has cost him, his role as leader, and weighing the difference between protecting his clan smartly or getting his revenge regardless of the cost. Uh, Heavy lies the crown, even for an ape. I know it sounds ridiculous because it's monkeys, but it all works. Another thing happens that sort of keeps any action from happening for a while that's too deep into spoiler territory. The structure weirdly sort of wraps back around into what was going on in the last half of the first movie in a way. There are, of course, all sorts of little things that point to the original movie as well. Remember, this trilogy is a prequel to that original movie from the 1968, I think it was. Um, in the Franco one back in 2011, they mentioned the astronauts, or maybe they referenced them in the second movie. Either way, I'm pretty sure they've already dealt with having Charleston Heston leaving the planet. This one also has references to a couple of other characters and things. The geography I found confusing, but I'm not a Planet of the Apes aficionado. Just a fan, and I love this movie. Um, the three movies together, an impressive feat, no lag in quality across them, and the CGI is top shelf. I mean, the Transformers and stuff gets all the headlines as far as CGI goes, but I think this is what the technology is meant for. I mean, those apes look real. And they're made from scratch. My only real beef is that they could have used one more fight scene and maybe cut a couple of other scenes for time. Like I said, it doesn't drag by any means, but two hours, 20 minutes could be a little lighter. Four couch cushions out of five for War for the Planet of the Apes. Well, and as far as the CGI effects goes, I mean, this is the kind of movie that ends up winning at the Oscars. Yeah. I'm just trying to remember if Rise of the Planet of the Apes... Uh, was a victor. I know it was not okay. So it was nominated uh, in 2012. It did not win. Did it lose the Transformers or something silly? No. You know the last. Oh, I can't. I, Don't worry about I, it. I can't figure out what what actually did end up winning that year. It doesn't matter. Um, but these are the kinds of movies that end up winning. Jungle Book, I think, has won. Yep. That Golden Compass a few years back won because it had all sorts of animals. That yeah, that's realistic. your theory. Animals is what does it, eh? Uh, uh, Ex Machina won a couple of years ago, and that was, uh, you know, they tended to go for things that are either more sort of loosely based in reality. Like you would think a movie like Star Wars, The Force Awakens, would have been a a slam dunk, but yeah. they they always t- tend to go for movies that are a bit more realistic. So <laughs> I could see this movie getting nominated. I could also see Dunkirk getting nominated. Cleaning House, at the very least, in the uh, the sound categories and potentially even the visual effects. Uh, we got a few minutes left here. We have four minutes or three minutes left, so we'll just quickly tell you about this. I got excited, Jeff, this mm-hmm. week when I saw this promo. So I have something to tell you. Does mom know? Of course I know that. You think I'm a dummy? Just a little private pink. Are you saying that you're going to start dressing up like a lady all the time? <laughs> no. I mean, all my life I've been dressing up like a man. The award-winning series from the beginning. Transparent. Canadian broadcast premiere July 21st. Only on Showcase. Transparent has made its way to broadcast television courtesy of Showcase as of this weekend. The award-winning show hails from Amazon, starring Jeffrey Tambor, Judith Light, and Catherine Hahn. And here's the description at Showcase.ca. When Mora, who spent her life as Mort, the... 
Pfefferman family patriarch reintroduces herself to her family, everyone's secrets finally start to come out. Her children, meandering, Allie, record producer Josh, and sexually conflicted Sarah start to spin in different directions as they begin to figure out who they are. So it looks like the only opportunity to watch this will be on Fridays, where Showcase is running three episodes a week as they plow through the first three seasons before season four debuts this fall, and Showcase will indeed be carrying that fourth season. So that's pretty cool. I would imagine the episodes will also be available at showcase.ca, at least on a week-to-week basis, but don't quote me on that. Just keep an eye on that. Hopefully you can get an opportunity to have a look at Transparent. Now, we've got 90 seconds left. Let's talk about some Game of Thrones. Enemies to the east. Enemies to the west. Enemies to the south. Enemies to the north. Whatever stands in our way, we will defeat it. Season 7 opener, what'd you think, Jeff? Uh, season, season openers are always kind of bleh to me. They're just, it's setting the table for what's to come, so it was fine. <laughs> All right. I uh, should point out that the ratings were amazing. Last time I looked, they were at uh, 16.1 million. That was as of this past Monday. I forgot to look at the update. But that was a 50% increase from the previous season. And those numbers were only going to go up as people end up watching more on streaming or on demand or whatever. So that's pretty good. Uh, shorter season this year. It's only seven episodes. That's why I thought they would have done more in that first one. But some of the episodes are going to be longer. Like, we're going to think there's going to be at least two that are 90 minutes. We lose the number of episodes, but we gain actually quite a bit of time. I would also point out I was trying to eat a meal while they were with the little poop montage. That did not make things... That was not good. (laughs) You did not like the visit to the Citadel this week? No, I did not. (laughs) All right. Well, Game of Thrones, still one of the best shows on TV in my book. I was super happy to see it come back. That's all the time we have. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. Remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother.